Well, this is Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air, and I'm Jim Grant, and uh, joining me, as always, is the uh, great Deputy Editor of Grants, Evan Lorenz, and today we have um, a very timely and special guest in Julian Klamachko, who is uh, world's leading authority on the uh, world's leading speculative investment, the SPAC. So uh, before we get into this, I would like to uh, put in a plug for the first read of the day. The first read of the day could be DelanceyPlace.com, DelanceyPlace.com, which is, I don't know, it it comes to you in the magical way that these things turn up in one's inbox. And Delancey Place delivers every morning Unbidden, unless well, you you bid for it by signing up, but it arrives and it's a it's a, like an 800 word excerpt from a book. And recently, the uh, Delancey Place people have been on a kind of a financial history jag. And uh, this morning's excerpt is Julian. I, I think you will agree this is exceptionally timely. The title is uh, "Ancient Legal Thought" by Larry May. Came out uh, in 2019, I guess. And um, what is especially apropos about ancient legal thought? is that part of the Code of Hammurabi dealing with debt forgiveness. Debt forgiveness. That's kind of a thing now, right? I mean, we read about this, uh, for example, I think that there's some move for it in Europe with the European Central Bank. We don't only just have the uh, the, uh, good grace to uh, mark its existing conventional portfolio securities, conventional and unconventional because they yield nothing, but never mind. But the otherwise conventional portfolio securities just um, transform them into zero coupon perpetuals. Um, The European community's debt load would be lightened instantly. And I I could see uh, S&P and Mui's conferring like an instantaneous uh, upward revision, uh, like from, um, everything's rated now, probably what, um, a to double A, maybe triple A plus. What's beyond triple A plus? Something. But uh, so anyway, that's for your consideration, ladies and gentlemen. DelanceyPlace.com, uh, the Code of Hammurabi, and the coming thing, student loans, European debt, Japanese debt, what have you, debt forgiveness. Yeah, doesn't yield anything anyway. But um, Evan, I'm going to I'm going to turn the, uh, the SPAC discussion to, over to you and Julian. You found out uh, about Julian, and, and he kindly agreed to your invitation. And, and you, Evan, are the inventor, the, uh, the progenitor of the famous, the slightly well-known Grants SPAC Index. But I think it's probably good for all hands if you and Julian would tell us what the heck a SPAC is. So let's begin there. Uh, Julian, so the question of the day, what is a special purpose acquisition company? That's a great question, uh, Jim and Evan. Thank you for having me on the show. Super happy to be here. So let's get into it. A SPAC or a special purpose acquisition company, also known as a blank check. The way that it works is they'll do their own initial public offering, an IPO, say they raise about $200 million, and the IPO will generally be for units at $10 per unit. So notice how I said units, not shares. So typically a unit's made up of common shares, and a fraction of a warrant. Uh, Some offer no warrants these days, just given the market's pretty frosty, and some offer a third quarter to even a full warrant. So units at $10 and, you know, hedge funds, kind of like the one that I run, typically subscribe to the IPO. And what the SPAC sponsor does with that $10 per share per unit that they raise, in this example, $200 million, that goes into trust. And in trust, they invest in T-bills, so perhaps the safest security out there. And they're not allowed to touch it 
until they complete a business combination. What the mandate of a SPAC is to complete a business combination, basically a merger with a private company over a set time frame, generally two years. And if they don't complete a business combination within that set time frame, then they liquidate and they pay out the trust value, which in this case would be $10 plus accrued interest, which uh, I'm sure you guys know these days is very, very little. Um, but nonetheless, you know, that IPO capital is safe in the uh, alternative where they do announce a business combination. And, you know, nearly 99% of SPACs these days are announcing business combinations. Uh, they put it up for both and two days prior to the vote, they give SPAC shareholders the option again to redeem for uh, the $10 plus accrued interest. So it's an interesting security. I consider it a different asset class than common shares are just equities and fixed income because, you know, SPACs basically have this embedded put. And if you subscribe to the IPO or buy the units in the secondary market, you do get this warrant kicker upside. Obviously, if a SPAC liquidates, the warrants are worthless. However, you know, if they do do a business combination and you choose to redeem your shares, those warrants still have a significant value. So it puts together an interesting risk-reward proposition such that if you buy these at the right price, i.e. like $10, sometimes you can buy them at a discount in that you get equity upside combined with the downside of uh, TIDA or a scenario that I refer to as heads we win, uh, tails we win big. So it's an interesting security. They have certainly uh, proliferated recently and uh, become topic du jour. So those are the, the basic mechanics. The other thing that I should mention, and I'm sure you'll want to talk about, is the notion of the sponsor promote. Now, the sponsors, the entrepreneurs, the management team that put together and steer these SPACs through their IPO and business combination. So they actually get uh, as much as 20% of free shares. So it's, say it's a $200 million IPO and it's 20% of the pro forma SPAC. So they could be issued about $50 million worth of stock in that scenario. Now there's a lot of nuances to that. They could get negotiated down when a business combination happens. The other notion is that they don't necessarily get these shares for free. Like because the SPAC can't touch the $10 in trust, they do need capital to fund their operations. So what the sponsor does is they put capital into the SPAC that we call at-risk capital, and they generally do it through private placement warrants, which are equivalent to the warrants offered in the units. And that's typically around 3% of the, the IPO value. But Ju Julian, so, that's a, a very good and helpful background. But I'd like to dig in something that you said there, which is that when you invest there around $10 or less, you kind of have this dynamic where it's heads I win or tails I win. But I'd like you to contrast that with kind of the academic literature that shows if you look at most SPAC performances after mergers, they not only underperform the market, but they tend to underperform pretty largely. I'd love if you can kind of bridge between the optionality you get when you invest at $10 versus what happens after the mergers where a lot SPACs do trade pretty poorly. Yeah, that's a great point, Evan. And so when I said that dynamic, the effective embedded put or the interesting risk reward, note that that disappears when the redemption date passes. So by the time the deal vote rolls around, I consider that a post-SPAC equity. And it can trade wherever. That embedded put at $10 plus accrued interest is no longer there. And so basically a SPAC changes asset classes two days prior to a deal vote because you no longer have your redemption privilege and it can just trade like a normal stock. So it transitions 
from a SPAC with this unique risk-reward dynamic, and then a post-SPAC equity, which you indicated, academic literature, does indicate that on a median basis, they tend to underperform. And I believe it follows somewhat of a Pareto distribution, similar to what you'd see in venture capital, where post-SPAC equities, you have a few big winners and a lot of losers. What we've been seeing lately is that a lot of earlier stage, more speculative story-type stocks have been going public by SPAC, and so that could contribute to the return distribution of post-back equities. And and if you read up on uh, additional academic literature, uh, I believe Goldman Sachs put out a report that indicated that investing in uh, pre-deal SPACs is where you know, a significant amount or, or perhaps all the alpha is. And then on a post-back equity basis, there's a negative alpha, as you indicated, at least you know, um, historically. Well, one of the academic uh, critics of the SPAC or the students of the SPAC is a fellow named uh, Michael Clouster. He teaches law at, Harvard, at Stanford. He's one of the co-authors of one of the uh, more frequently cited academic studies of SPACs. And here is his quote in Bloomberg concerning SPACs. Quote, it's very strange. I fundamentally don't understand why these things exist. Julian, why do they exist? There is basically two factors in which has led to a you know tremendous boom in the in the popularity and and you can view a SPAC as kind of like a a single stock VC or a single stock private equity fund you know it's it's kind of the same thing where you have a lot of alternative investment managers coming into the space like uh, Apollo TPG and you know hedge fund managers Pershing Square and VC firms Dragoneer uh, Social Capital and so they're putting together basically one deal funds and that's basically what a SPAC is. And why they're so popular these days, confluence of two factors. So number one, on the demand side, if you look at the equity markets over the past 20 years, you've seen a dramatic decline in listings in the U.S. from like 8,000 to about 5,000 shares as capital has grown significantly in the private asset space. And one common approach to public equities is that public market investors are very short-term focused, only care about quarterly results, and you must be profitable and making the numbers. But I think what really turned this on its head was the SPAC that did a transaction with Virgin Galactic, which was a very early stage company, highly speculative and wasn't going to earn revenue a number of years out. And that proved incredibly popular in the public markets. And, and we really haven't seen public market investors get access to earlier stage companies, uh, pre-profit and sometimes even pre-revenue. And that is proven to be um, of extreme demand, uh, specifically mostly by retail investors, but some institutional investors as well. So there is this inherent demand for earlier stage companies. I consider them a series D, you know, level of VC type opportunities that are pursuing to go public prior than, than where they used to. Like if you look at Uber or something along those lines, they went public after most of the growth was uh, out of the company and they're fairly mature. However, a lot of the companies going public by SPAC these days are earlier stage and there's a tremendous demand for them from public market investors. Then uh, on the supply side, on the flip side of the coin, uh, more and more sponsors realize the tremendous economics of these sponsor promote, which is unlike we've ever seen in investment management to get you know, where you can make uh, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, off of a one deal transaction. You know, there is a sponsor that could make $1 billion today in comp- or this year in, in compensation off their SPAC. 
So that is something very notable. And it's really led to a boom, just the confluence of those two factors, both supply and demand. But let, let's preferred... put the boom in context, because like last year, there was $83 billion raised in the SPAC asset class, which was more than the asset class had raised cumulatively in all previous years. And that was through 248 yeah. IPOs. So far in January alone, 74 SPACs have raised $21 billion, which means that just in yeah. a little bit less than three months, we'll take out last year's record, which was bigger than all prior years. Is there a certain point where this asset class just grows so much and does deals that are more marginal on basis that it ends up burning investors and it kind of shrinks the asset class for years going forward? Yeah, it's certainly a concern. It's just gotten into quite a bit of frenzy, as you indicated. In January, we are way above $20 billion. If we rewind back to October, there was $18 billion in SPAC IPOs. I never thought that record would get broken, but here we are. On January, it's not even finished, and we're at like $21 billion <laughs> across just you know, 74, 75 issues. And it's incredible, like the amount of SPACs outstanding. There's currently 345 in the market, of which... 286 are looking for a deal. In addition, there's a nearly 100 active S1 filing um, SPAC plan on coming to the market. So, I mean, I, I would have thought the limit to the market was less than where we're at uh, today. I mean, 345 SPACs, that is a lot. So who really knows where the this market is sustainable? I always thought kind of in the 2 to $4 billion per month, certainly not uh, north of $20 billion, which is exceptional. So if you go uh, prior to the boom that started in July of 2020, we're seeing kind of like $3 billion on average in SPAC IPOs. But contrasting that, you've seen many firms turn SPACs into a business line, a manufacturing operation. If we take private equity shops, you know, like Apollo, Fortress, CPG, et cetera. There's certain business lines, leverage buyouts, credit, infrastructure, et cetera. They all now have SPAC business lines where they're churning out, you know, three to four per year. And I expect that to continue. So it is, uh, there's a lot going on and the, the market just moves so fast that, uh, you know, it's tough to know what to expect, but it certainly has expanded far greater and far faster than I w- would have ever imagined. Well, um isn't it odd that year after year, you know, passive strategies, uh, index funds have uh, taken share from active management? And uh, uh, we've heard over and over again that active management is dead and decomposing and that we all ought to just send our money to Vanguard and be done with it. Along comes the SPAC, otherwise known as a blind pool. And these promotions constitute the active management of a portfolio diversified to the end of one, right? One name one promoter, and we have heard from Julian himself that after the period when the search begins in earnest for that one, it is to be hoped, home run of a single acquisition, that's when time comes to get out. No? Is that fair characterization, Julian, of what you said? So well, you we get run, out. Yeah, and so the, the way that okay. we affect the strategy that I can walk you through what. No, no, no. I, I just want to make, to clarify, to clarify. Okay, so, so let me finish this one thought. So it seems to sure. me that this is demonstrably loony. Now, what have I missed? Is it something more than that? Doesn't this almost beg to be entered right now into the realm of uh, popular delusions of the madness of crowds or not? Yeah, perhaps there's some truth to that. And it really depends on, you know, the market environment. Because with the proliferation of SPACs, I'm here from sponsors that valuations are rising tremendously because, you know, they're all kind of chasing after the same targets. And if you're a target, then, you know, you can capitalize on that dynamic. However, you know, I view that similar to what you'd see in venture capital. You know, there's these hot startups where VC firms are all trying to throw money at them. 
and certainly they'd capitalize on that as well. And you see in, in the IPO space, I mean, SPACs are no different than some of these IPOs, uh, whether it be uh, DoorDash or Airbnb, where they're doubling overnight. Like, they know that valuations are rising and they're capitalizing on that. So it's not isolated within the SPAC market. Yeah. I think this market dynamic is viewable all over. It, it's part yeah. of the everything bubble. Um, Julian, I follow yeah. you on Twitter and I think everyone should. You go by the handle The Arbitrage King and you're at Julian Klamachko on Twitter. A week or two ago, you said we also passed another record, which is for the first time ever, no SPAC was trading at a discount to uh, net asset value. Is that still true today? And if uh, if so, what is like the average premium that SPACs are trading to the liquidation value? Like how much premium are people putting into this asset class. Yeah, so that's a really good point, Evan, because, you know, our strategy is to arbitrage these things. And we used to be able to buy them. If we rewind back to last spring, all SPACs were basically trading at a discount where we are buying at 950, 970, where you had uh, a great IRR to redemption and a worst case scenario, redemption or liquidation, and then upside optionality on both. And that's really been the key to the strategy uh, is this tremendous upside optionality where they announce a business combination. If you look at any of the hot sectors, electric vehicles, EV charging, things of that nature, and you see this tremendous, what we call a SPAC pop, where it'll trade up 50%, 100%. And so the market has started to price that in. And, you know, if you buy, if you're lucky enough to get access to the IPO at $10, you see them all instantly trade up. And I checked, I put out our monthly SPAC monitor, it's going out today, and there is zero trading at a discount Zero SPACs trading at a discount out, you know, 345, and that is unprecedented. Uh, we follow this market uh, closely, and we do trade in the secondary market and try to buy these at a discount. This is a straight cash uh, rate of return type arbitrage trade. And currently there are zero, which is uh, disconcerting, of course. And now average premium has risen to 24.3% above the trust value. And that's the average SPAC, which is, you know, extremely frothy in my opinion. If we rewind back to the fall, things were pretty frothy back then. The average premium nearly reached 15%, which was a record at the time. IPOs were getting uh, oversubscribed or allocations were getting back. Uh, cut back. And then uh, six weeks later into early November, the average SPAC premium actually declined to around zero. So just you know, two, two and a half months ago, the market was pretty balanced in terms of supply and demand. However, that has flipped. Even though we've had this tremendous flood of supply, as you indicated, record IPO issuance, the likes that we've never seen, like an order of magnitude larger, it seems like demand has just increased exponentially more where IPOs in the previous environment being three to five times oversubscribed. I think every, everyone we're looking at is like 10 times oversubscribed. On average, SPAC IPOs are trading up kind of six to 7% on the first day. And this is for a blank check company with just cash. But the reason is because market participants are, are starting to price in tremendous upside optionality, this back pop on deal announcement, where on average deals announced, a SPAC that have announced business combination in January, they're trading at an average unit premium uh, north of 60%. So that means a unit that you bought for $10 an IPO, if they did announce a business combination this month, um, then on average, they're trading north of $16. But that being said, you know, it's an extremely frothy environment and there's this tremendous built-in premium of 24.3%. So the average SPAC is trading at $12.40, call it. But that introduces some material downside for the strategy. So uh, guys like us, you know, we're very concerned with the risk and volatility built into that. 
and are kind of, you know, actively trying to pare back risk just to deal with that. But who knows? I mean, you never know how high valuations will go. And, uh, you know, it's certainly a crazy environment, but uh, you're seeing yeah. it in many pockets of the market, too. Hey, Julian, there's a, I see this morning there's a new uh, ETF to invest in SPACs. It's called Morgan Creek Capital Management each, uh, SPAC yep. ETF. Is this the first such thing or uh, one of many? Well, one of many, uh, Jim, so I run a company called Accelerate. We actually launched the first SPAC-focused ETF early last year, Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF. It actually trades up in Canada on the TSX, so we're kind of like the, uh, the, the odd man out. Yeah, so that's been around for almost a year, and after that, we have seen three more come out in the U.S., and, uh, you know, it's a topic du jour. Uh, SPACs have become very popular. Yeah. I never thought, I never well, thought yes, it would become I gather. <laughs> so, yeah, way, so way back, way, I think we'll see more of them for sure. Way back when, Julian, there was a, uh, we had uh, funds, uh, hedge funds, and then there were funds of funds, right? And yeah. at length, I've forgotten what year this might have been, 1999, maybe, yeah, 1998. We had, we had a front page headline of that barely fit across three columns. And the headline read as follows, fees and fees and fees on funds of funds of funds. That was in response to the first funds of funds of funds. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> and, I, and I'm wondering if there's going to be an ETF of ETF of SPACs. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thought, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it could be uh, a good business plan. Leverage. Are we going to see could, the, uh, the grant SPAC ETF of ETFs or what? Uh, Julian. <laughs> What you described right now in the market almost sounds like an inventory stocking cycle where people are overscribing to uh, IPOs because they know they're not going to get their full allotment, which means the uh, yeah. IPOs are able to kind of upsize. And then, uh, then once the deals start trading, people start buying into them more. In a typical commodity cycle, say, if automakers are worried that there's not going to be enough steel, they might order 120% of what they need because uh, they know they're not going to get their full order filled, which leads to massive price spikes. Then once supply responds to this, you get massive price declines. Do you think there might be something similar in SPACs where we have have so many people trying to pour in and they're actually over allocating towards IPOs and other funds like this because they know they can't get their full fill. But once they do, we could be on the other side where all of a sudden demand drops off while supply keeps ramping up. Oh, 100%. That is most certainly happening. And, you know, the sales these days are atrocious. The IPO, the stock IPO market, the most competitive I've ever seen it. As I indicated, you know, pretty much every deal 10x oversubscribed. A similar but less extreme dynamic played out fall of 2020, where we started to get cut back significantly on, on IPO allocations. And then the market softened into November. Then soon we're getting 100% bills. And then by early November, 80% of SPAC IPOs were breaking price and trading down the first day. 990, 995, they actually can pick up good deals in, in the secondary market. So I think the current dynamic of uh, being 10x oversubscribed, and I think the vast majority of that are like, you know, kind of fake orders where, you know, someone wants uh, a million shares, so they put in an order for 5 million because, you know, they know they're going to get cut back 80%. You know, that dynamic is most certainly being played out right now. So I view a lot of the oversubscription as, you know, illusory and not necessarily real. And when the market does turn, and, you know, it moves very fast, but it's cyclical like anything else where you uh, have a frothy market and a downturn. And, you know, at some point I expect it to normalize premiums to come back down and IPOs to have a better allocation to more longer term investors. I think what we've seen just with the tremendous performance of the asset class, you look at any SPAC fund 
and performance has just been uh, pretty incredible uh, lately, at least over the past um, uh, nine or 10 months. And so we have seen a lot of fast money hedge funds coming into the SPAC IPO market just because these things trade up like an average six to 7% on day one. And you're seeing about one third turnover on the first date. So a lot of you know hedge funds that weren't in it two months ago are now in it, just buying to flip on the first day. And you see a lot of turnover on first day SPAC IPOs. And you, they're just kind of you know scalping that six to seven percent, uh, largely to retail investors who are willing to pay that premium to cash that historically you know didn't happen in less frothy market environments. And you have seen like some of the, um, you know, the, the pod type, very large hedge funds come in and they just take down massive IPO allocations because they pay the highest commissions on the street. So certainly the space has become uh, quite crowded, I'd say. But I, I do expect that to normalize once you stop seeing that IPO pop, which is really just a recent phenomenon. Like I said, a couple months ago, that wasn't happening at all, except on the, on the hottest fields. But once that reverses, then I think a lot of these these guys will leave and that oversubscription will uh, come down significantly. Julian, this has been uh, really, really interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to uh, Julian Tomasco, who is uh, one of the, not only one of the earliest movers in this back business, but also one of the sanest and most knowing voices about uh, this phenomenon, which is uh, really something. I mean, this is like, uh, Evan, will you call this a thing? I think it's a heck of a thing. I, I, it's, a, it's a thing, and I, uh, I'm going to be uh, on the lookout for this because um, I'm afraid that one of these days there's going to be a great big smoking hole in the ground, and uh, you don't want to step in that. No, they want, they want to give that wide berth. But, um, Julian, thank you for being with us. And, uh, Evan, as always, i see you around the campus. And, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. This is uh, Jim Grant on behalf of Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Year. 